Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Just kind of resting, and so Don is back there with him. Just a, a matter of prayer, he's been having more frequent seizures, and they're lasting longer, and so if you would just keep our son Zachary in your prayers. Also, um, as Mickey had mentioned earlier, tonight we are going to be ordaining Andrew Hayes, our youth pastor, and I'm excited about that. His parents are here with us as well, and so um, I know the snow may be falling, but uh, you're here this morning, and come back tonight for a good time of, of basically commissioning Andrew to gospel ministry. Turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. The year was 1904, and the place was Wales. I don't know if you've heard about the Welsh revival of 1904, but it was a revival that sweeped through the entire nation. And it was so, so widespread that there was this huge community transformation. Um, bars closed down. Rugby and football, or soccer as they call it, that become, became uninteresting. Bad language began to disappear. As a matter of fact, what had happened was the bad language stopped so much that the mules that were used in the coal mines didn't understand directions anymore because the people weren't cussing at them. It was that widespread of a revival. But there was one statement that occurred in the Welsh revival. And that statement has stuck with me for many years. And it was this. Their cry to God was this, bend the church to save the world. Bend the church to save the world. What does it mean to bend the church? What does it mean to be bent? What's God speaking of when he talks about bending us? As the master potter, he comes and he shapes us. What I believe it means is that, that God would come and do such a deep work in our hearts that we are moved to repentance. We are moved to brokenness. We are moved to be a clay in the potter's hands. And we would say, God, do whatever you need to do to us so that this world can be one for Jesus Christ through revival. And so how does God bend us? What does it look like? Is it painful? Does it hurt? Is it uncomfortable? Bend the church to save the world. Now, we're looking at revival here in the book of Nehemiah. And and revival comes from two words. Revive. Revive. Re means again. Vive means to live. So revival means to, to bring people who are sleepy, people who are complacent, people who are lackadaisical, to bring them out of that state into a renewed passion for Jesus Christ. And so the question that we asked last week, and I've been thinking about all week, and I've been talking with a few of you, do we really want revival? Do we really want it? Because if God were to bring revival, it would mean some radical transformations in how we think, how we live, how we operate, what God would do in our lives. And so we come to Nehemiah. And remember, last week in Nehemiah chapter 8 was the beginning of this revival. 
The people stand and they come under the authority of God's word and they begin to to hear the word and fall under the word and be submissive to the word. They had a hunger for the word and then they they obeyed the word immediately. They, They celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. They got in these little temporary booths and for seven days they celebrated. The joy of the Lord was their strength. But it got to the eighth day and they held what was called a solemn assembly. A solemn assembly. And the huge question that I asked last week, and I'll ask it again, are we in times of revival today? Do we see it today? Are we in a time of revival? Would we even know it if it came? There's an old hymn I used to sing a lot when I was growing up, and and from time to time these hymns just kind of get into my mind and I begin to think about them. And so let me just, I won't sing it, I'll read to you this hymn, and you can sing it in your hearts if you know it. We praise thee, O God, for the Son of thy love, for Jesus who died and has now gone above. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. Hallelujah, thine the glory. See, this should be an anthem that we should be singing and we should be praising. This should be the heartbeat of Emmanuel Baptist Church. We should be saying, God, it's all about your glory. And God, would you revive us again the way that you did in the past, the way that you did it in Nehemiah, the way you did it during the Protestant Reformation, the way you did it during the First Great Awakening, the way you did it during the Welsh Revival. God, would you bring a revival? Would you bend us? Would you come in a divine interruption and shatter us and, 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 and surprise us and do something that only can be described as the work of God? God is doing this spiritual rebuilding project on the people. And Nehemiah. Remember, it's more than just the rebuilding of a wall. It's the rebuilding of the people. And last week in chapter 8, it was about God's authoritative word. The word was recovered. A hunger for the word. And so we get to the second mark of revival, and we find this in chapter 9. What's the second distinguishing mark of revival? That we know revival has come. Here's what it is. Authentic revival is marked by a repentant response to God's authoritative word. Repentance, a repentant response to this word. Now, in chapter 8, what happened? God spoke. They opened up the book and they read for it for those many, that nine-hour worship service, and God spoke. How does God speak? God speaks through his word. So in chapter 8, God speaks. In chapter 9, the people speak back to God. And what do we call that? We call it prayer. Prayer. So what we have in chapter 9 is one huge, long prayer. A prayer of confession. A prayer of repentance. A prayer of brokenness. But go back to chapter 8, the very last verse. And day by day, verse 18, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to to the rule. On the eighth day, they held a solemn assembly. Now, what's a solemn assembly? For seven days, they had been joyously celebrating the feast. But on the eighth day, there's a solemn assembly. It's a time for God's people to come together and be very, very serious and very, very passionate about confessing sin. We don't do that much in our culture today, in our church culture. When was the last time you participated in a solemn assembly? The specific purpose where God's people met together to cry out to Jesus and say, we 
confess our sins. So they call a solemn assembly. And so what we're going to see in chapter 9 in this solemn assembly are three, three ways that God bends the people. Three ways that they repent. They cry out in a repentant response to God's word. So let's read Nehemiah 1 through 6, and this is where we'll see the first issue. So Nehemiah chapter 9, 1 through 6. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place to read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood all those weird names, Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bani, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shenanai. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So here's the first thing we see when God brings revival. It's this, a passionate contrition, a passionate contrition over sin. Now, why do I use the word contrition? What does it mean to be contrite? A passionate, I'm going to trip over something, passionate contrition. Contrition means to have this heartfelt grieving, this mourning. You are sorrowful and sad over your sin. You are mourning over your sin. Because what has God's word done? In chapter 8, God's word has laid them bare. God's word has penetrated them to the depth of their souls and they cry out in anguish, God, we have disobeyed you. What does God's word do when it comes to our hearts? Well, Hebrews chapter 14 tells us, chapter 4, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's what's happened in Nehemiah chapter 8. God's word has cut them like a two-edged sword, laid them bare. They've been exposed. They realize for years and years they've lived in sin. And all they can do is cry out in anguish and cry out in contrition and say, God, we are sinners. We need to confess our sin. And why is it so passionate? Well, what are they doing here? They're fasting. They're wearing sackcloth, goatskin. Stuff that makes you feel uncomfortable. They're putting earth on their heads. They're putting ashes on their heads. It's this whole idea in that culture of demonstrably showing that you're serious about weeping and mourning over your sin. And notice what else they do. What does the text say they do? They separated themselves from the people. Now you may think, well, that's, that doesn't make a lot of sense. I don't quite understand that. They're the Israelites, they separate themselves from the rest of the people and they stand together as the people of God. There's something very important we need to understand about this when revival comes. Revival comes to God's people first. 
We can be so concerned with the big bad world out there and what God needs to do to punish sinners out there. And yes, is there sin out in the world? Yes. Is it a big bad world out there that's ungodly and, and, and against God? Yes. But, but, but the Israelites understood that before God dealt with the world, he needed to deal with them first. So in revival, God deals with his people first. There's, there, there, there's never going to be a, a period of revival until God's people first experience the revival. And then it spreads out to a watching world. God must bend the world. And notice, it's not just a quick prayer up to God. It's not just, God, I'm sorry, and they move on and do, and do what they need to do. How, how passionate is this? How, how long are they standing up there? A fourth of the day. A fourth of the day, they're up there reading from the Word of God. Again, the Word of God is central. Verse 3, they read from a quarter of the day, and then what's the other quarter of the day? They made confession, and they worshiped. For a quarter of the day, they stood and they confessed their sin. Now, I've been a little bit convicted lately about confession of sin. Confession of sin as an act of worship. How often do we give enough time in our worship services just to come before God as his people and say, we need to just spend some time confessing sin? When was the last time we had serious time to come? And I'm not saying everybody stands up and and, and reveals their deep, dark secrets. What I'm just saying is that corporately, do we pause in the middle of our worship services and do we say, God, we are sinners. We come before you and we confess. And the beauty of the gospel is we receive your forgiveness. We receive your pardon. We receive that joy of the Lord. See, part of the gospel means we understand our sin first and then we can experience the, the forgiveness and the freeing nature of what comes when Christ gives us his grace. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the first thing we see here is a passionate contrition. I mean, they're passionate. A quarter of the day, standing, they're they're fasting, they're, they're mourning, they're weeping, they're crying out to God with a passionate contrition because they've been exposed by this word. It's cut them to the heart. They realize they've fallen short of what God's word says. But here's the second thing that they do. It's a prayerful confession of rebellion against a merciful God. I want you to notice the two things side by side. God's mercy, our rebellion. God's mercy, our rebellion. All through the prayer, the rest of this chapter is a prayer. And the repeated word all throughout the prayer is, God, you've been merciful. God, you've been merciful. God, you've been merciful. God, you've been merciful. But we've been rebellious. We've been rebellious. We've been rebellious. God, you've been merciful. God, you've been merciful. So let's read part of this prayer. I'm going to take it in bite-sized chunks because it's a long prayer. So we're going to kind of read it in bite-sized chunks, but I want you to notice the key word mercy that shows up. And what they're going to do here in this prayer, it's very interesting, the structure of the prayer. They're going to start in Genesis and go Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way up to their present situation. So they're going to recount the history of the Bible starting in Genesis, actually before Genesis, up to where they are now in their prayer. So let's see where it starts. At the end of verse 5, these Levites tell them, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Now really where they start with is before the Old Testament begins, where do they start? In eternity past, with God being the everlasting God. God is eternal. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God, the eternal God, the God that was there before creation, the God who's always been. Isaiah 44, 6, Thus says the Lord, 
the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. God is from beginning to end. He's ultimate. He's eternal. He's infinite. God is powerful. Psalm 95, 3 through 8. For the Lord is a great God. And a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. God is the infinite God who's the creator. Look at verse 6. You are the Lord, you alone. You've made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that's in it, the seas and all that's in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Genesis 1.1. God is the creator God. He's the maker of all things. He is ultimate. Now, what they're going to do here is they're going to address two issues in their prayer. Number one, idolatry, and number two, pluralism. Two things that we struggle with in our world today idolatry. Notice what they say. What do they say there in verse 6? You are the Lord, you alone. God alone is to be worshipped. John Calvin said our hearts are an idol factory. We just keep cranking out idols. And idols can come in any form. An idol can be something that's good, like a spouse or money or a job or a relationship or a career. Anything that you elevate above God becomes an idol. And what this said, this prayer is saying is they're, they're starting from the very beginning. You alone are God. We are going to worship you alone. We're going to put away our idols. We're going to worship you alone. And secondly, pluralism. Now, what is pluralism? It's a word we don't use a lot. Pluralism basically says there's many paths to God. If you want to believe in Allah, Cool. If you want to believe in Buddha, cool. If you want to believe in Vishnu, cool. If you want to believe in some new age guru God, cool. Whatever God you choose, cool. It's all basically the same God, right? Wrong. What does it say right there? You are the Lord, you alone. God alone, Yahweh. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, He alone is God. So their prayer starts in Genesis 1-1. You're God. You're the maker. And then they move through Genesis to the, to the choosing and calling of Abraham. Notice what else they do there. Verse 7, You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him up out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you. You made with him the covenant to give to his offering, the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Gigashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. Number two, not only are you the creator God, but you are the covenant-keeping God. You are the God of promise. You're the promise-keeping God. You came to Abraham, and you birthed the nation of Israel, and you made a covenant with him, and you entered into a relationship with Abraham, and you birthed the nation of Israel. You are the covenant-keeping God. You're the promise-keeping God. You're a God who can keep your promises. Okay, Genesis is down. What's the next book in the Bible? Work with me, folks. Exodus. All right, Exodus. What happens next? We see Exodus. Look at verse 9 through 12. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt 
and heard their cry at the Red Sea. That's Exodus. And performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of this land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them. So they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day. And by a pillar of fire in the night to light them for the way in which they should go. Okay, so God is the law-giving God. What did God do in Exodus? He gave them the Ten Commandments. He wanted to make a name for himself. So God is the creator God. God is the covenant-keeping God. God is the God of promise. God is the the law-giving God. He is the God, he's the redeemer God. He redeemed them out of Israelite, out of Egyptian slavery, out of bondage. And so we've got Exodus now. now. Now what happens? We've got verse 13, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments, and you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst, and you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Okay, he he gives Genesis through Deuteronomy. God has provided for you. God has given you his law. God has redeemed you out of Egyptian slavery. God is going to give you the promised land. But notice what verse 16 says. What does verse 16 say? But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return them to slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, and in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way that they should go. You gave them your good spirit to instruct them, and did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and gave them water for their first. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell." God was merciful. God was gracious. God was your provider. God did this for 40 years, and how did you act? You fashioned a golden calf as the ultimate act of blasphemy. You stiffened your neck. You were rebellious. But how did God respond? With mercy. There in verse 17, at the end of verse 17, that's probably the most important passage of Scripture in this entire prayer. That is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Back in Exodus chapter 34, God appeared to Moses in the cleft of the rock, and God announced to Moses who he is. So what did God say back in Exodus 34, 5 and 6? The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's what's repeated here. All throughout the Old Testament, God keeps showing up as a faithful, merciful, loving, compassionate, slow to anger, forgiving God. He does this time and time again. And what do the Israelites do time and time again? 
They spit in his face. They shake their fist at him. They rebel. They stiffen their necks over and over again. And God keeps being merciful and merciful. And they keep being rebellious and rebellious and merciful and merciful. And you've got to stand up and say, God, how much patience do you really have with the Israelites? Because if I was God and the Israelites were my people, they'd be long gone. I would have obliterated them off the map and said, so sorry, Israelites, you're done. How long is God's infinite fuse anyway of anger? You have to ask the question, how long is God going to put up with these crazy Israelites? Because what do we see in the Old Testament? Mercy upon mercy upon mercy, rebellion upon rebellion upon rebellion. And God keeps announcing to himself, I am a merciful God. So much so that God gave them his Holy Spirit. In verse 19, I gave you the Holy Spirit. I gave you manna. I gave you quail. I gave you water. Even your shoes, you didn't have to replace your shoes or your clothes. I provided for you. So we've got Genesis through Deuteronomy down. What's the next book in the Bible? Joshua. Joshua is when they go in and conquer the land. So let's keep reading. Verse 22. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. That's actually Deuteronomy. Verse 23, you multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. You brought them into the land that you had told their forefathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went into the land and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and they were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Joshua gave them the land. Let them occupy the land. They're in the promised land. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of goodness. But how do they respond? Look at verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard from them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors or judges who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. You've got the book of Judges. And what does God do? The people commit blasphemies. The people rebel. The people fall into idolatry. They cry out to God because a foreign nation has taken them over. And what does God do in his great mercy? He, he raises up a judge, Samson, Gideon, to deliver them. Mercy, mercy, rebellion, rebellion. But let's see what happens in verse 32. Actually, let's go back up to verse 29. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them, and turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Okay, prophets. Joshua, Judges, 
First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Who were the prophets? Elijah, Elisha, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Micah, Habakkuk, Amos. All of those prophets. God kept warning them with prophets. But notice what happened. Verse thirty. Many years you bore with them and warned them by by your spirit through the prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Exile. They went into exile. That's where they've been for the past 70 years. Where are they now? They're back after exile in the land. They've rebuilt the wall. And notice verse 31. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Do you notice the prayer? I mean, you can't get away from the prayer. We have rebelled. You've been merciful. We have rebelled. You've been merciful. We have rebelled. You've been merciful. We've rebelled so much that you've kicked us out of the land, but you brought us back. You've been merciful. We have time and time insulted you, God. We have time and time spit in your face. We have time and time again offended you, and you've been merciful. So let me just stop and ask you a question. Let's just, let's just move the Israelites out of the picture, and let's talk about us. How many times have we spit in God's face? How many times have we been disobedient? How many times have we shaken our fist at God? How many times have we rebelled against God and God shook us from our scruffy little necks that were stiff-necked and said, because I love you, I will show mercy. Praise God he does that. If God had not shown any of us mercy, where would we all be? We'd be under his wrath. So when God shows mercy time and time again, What's the purpose of him showing the mercy? So we can go back and keep rebelling again? I like sinning. God likes forgiving. What a wonderful relationship. Let's keep this up as long as we can do it. No. What does Romans chapter 2 verse say? Romans, 2 chapter, Romans chapter 2 verse 4. Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance why is God kind to you and me why is God merciful in the midst of our rebellion it's not so that we keep rebelling it's so that we repent his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance and so the Israelites are passionately confessing the sin God we're part of this huge stream of history from Genesis up to where we are right now and every book in between we've seen the pattern rebellion 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 but we've seen your pattern God mercy 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 God why would you do it why would you show us mercy? Because you're a merciful God. You made a covenant with us. You chose Abraham. You birthed the nation of Israel. You are a God who keeps his promise. And so now we get to the third part of the prayer. The first part of the prayer is we're going to passionately stand and confess our sins. Second part of the prayer is we're going we're to pray this prayer of contrition. We're going to be sad and pray this prayer of contrition. But here's the third one. And this one's a powerful one. It's a powerful concession of guilt in response to God's justice. Now let's see how this unfolds, this concession of guilt in response to God's justice. Let's keep reading. Let's pick up in verse 32. Now therefore, do you see the shift, the the prayer shifting here? They're going to move into the actual request. They've spent all this time confessing sin, confessing the nature of God, saying they've been rebellious, they've been rebellious, God's been merciful. Now therefore, verse 32, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, 
who keeps covenant and steadfast love, here's their request. Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us. Upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria, that's when the, the nation of Israel first went into captivity, the northern kingdom, until this day. Yet you have been righteous. Pay attention to verse 33. You have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom, enjoying your great goodness that you gave them. And in that large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day. In a land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They ruled over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. Lord, we're in great distress. We're in a foreign, we were in a foreign nation for 70 years, but you brought us back. But we're still slaves. There's no king on the throne Jerusalem is not in its glory days. Yes, the wall's been rebuilt, but God, we're in distress because it's not the way it should be. And we know exactly why we're here. We just recounted Genesis to up to this point. It's because our fathers acted sinfully. We have acted sinfully. And what's their simple prayer request? Let not all the hardship seem little to you. There's this powerful concession of guilt in verse 33. They know they're sinful. Notice what verse 33 says. You've been righteous. God, you've been righteous in all that's come upon us. You've dealt faithfully, and we've acted wickedly. What they're basically saying is, God, we deserve what we have. God, we deserve justice. We understand why we're in exile. You've done nothing wrong, God. We were the ones that have done things wrong. God, you've been right to kick us out of the land. God, you're right to punish us. God, you're right to discipline us. As a matter of fact, God, you have every right to pour out your wrath and obliterate us if you wanted to because you're a God of justice. We're the ones that have sinned, not you, God. There's no haggling with God. There's no bargaining with God. There's no minimizing sin with God. They're straight up saying, God, we deserve what we've got and you have every right to give it to us. So there's one thing that we can plead. We cannot plead for your justice, because God, if we plead for justice, what will we get? What we deserve. There's only one thing we can plead for, and it's what we've seen over and over and over again from Genesis to at this point. There's one thing we can plead for. What's the one thing we can plead for? Mercy. God, you were merciful in the past. You were merciful at the golden calf. You were merciful in the time of the judges. You were merciful even in the exile and bringing us back. And God, we are where we are today. And the only thing we can plead is give us mercy. We deserve everything that you heap upon us. All we can do is cry out for mercy. Do we think in these type of categories? Do we believe, do we truly believe that God has absolute sovereignty over our lives and can do whatever he wants? And if God wanted to obliterate us off the map, he could do it and would be just in doing so. 
Does God obligate us with anything? Is God in our debt? Is God obligated to save us? Does God have to save us? Does God have to show us mercy? If God had to do those things, it would not be mercy. It would not be grace. It would be something we earned or we deserved. There is nothing in this universe that's compelling God to show us mercy. As a matter of fact, everything in this universe cries out that we deserve wrath because think about our sin. Think about the sin that we've committed against a holy God time and time again. What's the only thing that we can plead for with a holy God? God, have mercy upon me because you had mercy upon the Israelites. Mercy upon mercy upon mercy in the midst of my rebellion, my rebellion, my rebellion. What did the thief on the cross cry out? Do you remember the thief on the cross? He's hanging there next to Jesus being crucified for sins that he committed. Back in Luke chapter 23, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, one of the criminals, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you today, today you will be with me in paradise. The thief understood justice. What's the thief saying to the other thief? We're getting exactly what we deserve. We are hanging here on this cross because we are criminals. We have every right to be punished. I own up to my sin. I know why I'm here. We are suffering justly because we are sinners. But this man, there's something different about this man. This man is not sin. This man's a king. This man's coming in his kingdom. This man can offer eternal life. And so what's the only thing that the thief can say to Jesus? He simply says, remember me. In other words, the thief is saying, Jesus, I can't plead for anything here. I'm hanging here because I deserve it. The only thing I can do, Jesus, is look to you and say, please have mercy upon me because I deserve wrath, not mercy. And the only thing I can ask you, Jesus, is give me mercy. And what does Jesus do? He looks at the man in his eye and says, today, today you will be with me in paradise. The vilest of criminals can be saved by a merciful Savior that has showed mercy time and time again. Habakkuk 3.2. The people were crying out for revival. And they knew they deserved not revival, but they deserved wrath. In Habakkuk 3.2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear In the midst of the years, revive it. Bring it back. Bring revival. In the midst of the years, make it known. Do something that you've done in the past. Make it known. Bring revival. But then notice what they say in wrath. Remember mercy. It's as if Israel's saying, God, we've seen you act before time and time again. We were rebellious and you showed us mercy. We were there at the golden calf having orgies and giving our money to to idolatry and you had mercy. We were killing the prophets and you showed us mercy. You kicked us out of the land and you showed us mercy. And now, God, we're here with this wall rebuilt and we know we're sinners and we know you can show us mercy. And the thief on the cross cries out, Jesus, show us mercy. And I hope that you today 
Understand the gravity of your own sin and the only thing that you can say to a holy God who has every right to obliterate you off the planet to say, please have mercy upon me. And Jesus Christ never turns away a sinner that comes to him in repentance and faith. If you come today in repentance and faith to a holy Savior, he will not turn you away. So let me ask you the question, are we in times of revival? Do we see people doing this? Do we see a church standing for a quarter of an hour just confessing sin before a a holy God? Do we see the reading of the word? Do we see nine-hour worship services? Don't worry, we're not going to stay here. Nine hours. Are we serious? Are we passionate about repentance? There's a key word in verse 35. It's the Hebrew word shuv. Shuv, to turn to repent. Verse 35, even in their own kingdom, enjoying your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or shuv, turn, repent from their wicked works. Is God a God of mercy? Yes. Is God a God of compassion? Yes. Is God a God of forgiveness? Yes, but is it automatic? What does it hinge upon? Turning. Repenting. Doing the 180 degree turn that we call repentance. If you're here this morning and you've never repented, you've never turned, you've never done that 180 degree, it's it's like this. I've done this illustration before, but this wall back here is your life of sin and you're in love with this life of sin and you embrace this life of sin and everything about this world you embrace as, as, as the all in all and you turn from that. And as you make that 180 degree turn from that life, you're turning toward Jesus in faith. And when you turn from that toward Jesus, you find his arms open in mercy to receive you. Forgiveness is not automatic. Charles Spurgeon said this, our repentance should be as notorious as our sin. Do you understand what he means by that? Your repentance should be so widespread, so known, so demonstrable, so concrete, so life transformation that it overrides the sin that you have in your life. Then when people look at your life, they don't see your sin, they see the repentance. They see the change. They see the difference. Bend the world to save, or bend the church to save the world. So here's the question we've got to ask ourselves this morning. Would you truly, honestly pray for God to bend you? Bend the church. God, I... I'm a rebel, and I've stiffened my neck, and I've disobeyed time and time again. But I've seen from Scripture, and I've seen from my own life, time and time again, how you have shown me mercy. So would you be merciful to me, a sinner? And would you bend me? Would you bend us? And I've said this before. The best place to be is in the hands of the potter. When the master potter begins to shape and bend your life, it can be painful at times. It can be excruciating. There can be places where he pinches and he, and he moves and he molds. But what's the ultimate goal of the potter? He wants to fashion you into a beautiful pot to be used. 
And when you take your hands out of the potter, you're just spinning on that little clay pot and you're kind of flumping around like a, I don't know what it's called. What, what, what's, what's it called when clay gets flumpy? Is flumpy even a word? Lumpy, flumpy, useless. God is wanting to bend us. God is wanting to shape us. God is wanting to use us. God is wanting to do a work in us. And our prayer should be, hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Would you revive us again? And I'm afraid for most of us, when we think of revival, we have these happy thoughts. We don't think about revival being bend us to save the world. It starts with repentance first in the house of God. And then God will deal with the world. Bend us. Let's ask God to do that right now. Let me ask you to bow your heads. And let that just be our simple prayer this morning. It's going to manifest itself different in each of our lives. But when we truly pray, God, bend us. That may mean something totally different for everybody in this room, but, but, the, but the principle of it's the same. When we ask God to bend us, it means that we are surrendering our will to Almighty God's and we're saying, whatever you have for me, God, whatever your will is, whatever your purpose is, I'm going to be like clay in the hands of the potter. God, do with me what you will to accomplish your purposes. Bend me. Bring your mercy. Revive us. Again, spend some time in prayer asking God to bend you for his glory. Father, we come before you as the only true God. You alone are God. There is no other God before you. There is no other God above you. You are the one true living God. And Father, you are a God of mercy, a God of compassion, a God of grace, a God of forgiveness, a God of kindness, a God of patience. And Father, it amazes us time and time again when we look at the pages of Scripture and we see the disobedience of the Israelites. We see the rebellion of the Israelites. And time and time again, you showed them mercy because of your covenant love to them. And Father, you've shown us covenant love in Christ. We are your people in Christ. And you've promised to never leave us or forsake us in Christ. And you've pledged your faithfulness to us in Christ. And so, Lord, when time and time again we're rebellious, we can count on your mercy. But God, give us a heart of repentance to turn, to be willing to stand and confess our own sins and the sins of our nation and the sins of our own generation and the sins of our parents. And, and Father, to be those that would come and be serious about passionately confessing sin and repenting sin. And Lord, let your word come and lay us bare. Let it penetrate us. Bend us, Father. Master, potter, come and do a work in our hearts. We don't want to stay the same. 
And we pray that with fear because we know that if we don't want the same, stay the same, that means you change us and change is scary. And I admit that, Father. I admit that on behalf of this church. Change is scary. Obedience is scary. Being bent is scary. But I'd much rather be in your hands, Father, than in my own. Because I know left to myself, I'm never going to change. I'm never going to bend myself. I'm never going to be obedient left to myself. So God, come and do a work in us, through us, for your glory. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. We are sleepy. We are complacent. We are lackadaisical. Would you wake us up, God? Whatever that means, would you wake us up? Bend us, mold us, shape us, revive us. Not so that we can make much of ourselves, but so that we can make much of you. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.